Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for your company here again on ADH TV. This streaming service has now climbed in the App Store rankings overnight as we expand, as you know, to two nightly shows. Fred Paul will be here after me at 9 o'clock, 9 p.m. Monday to Thursday. He did a splendid job last night and will continue to give you much needed common sense in this rather mad world. Look, if you get a moment later on, make sure you watch On Demand, his interview last night with Jacinta Price. She's a unifier, unlike that Greens senator, Lydia Thorpe. I've always said that Australians are colour blind, but they're not behaviourally blind. Thorpe's behaviour yesterday, Senator Thorpe, in the Senate, was absolutely disgraceful. As I told you last night, Thorpe refused to read the oath as it is, the first time referring to the colonising queen, dressed in black with her clenched fist raised in the air to make the affirmation of allegiance, she made a fool of herself. The Senate President, Sue Lyons, the one who wanted to abolish the reading of the Lord's Prayer at the start of each sitting day, to her credit, asked Thorpe, or told Thorpe, to recite the oath again correctly. But I'm afraid Sue Lyons is hardly the best example to the Parliament. She's all about dismantling traditions as well. I'm fed up to the back teeth with these clowns who draw a taxpayer-funded salary, a big one, in the Parliament via a handful of votes boosted by preferences. If they hate us and our country, fine. Well, if they hate our Judeo-Christian values, and fine. Well, why don't they go elsewhere? What are they doing there? I would have ejected Senator Thorpe from the chamber and suspended her indefinitely. Indeed, as Pauline Hanson said last night, we perhaps need a courageous Victorian to challenge her right to even be in the parliament. She seems so filled with hatred, with a massive chip on her shoulder. Her only agenda seems to be to divide our country and pit Australians against one another. I just urge you to watch again my interview last night with Pauline Hanson on the ADH TV app. Senator Hanson speaks fluently and tells us just how divisive is this Senator Lydia Thorpe. I just shake my head, though, when I hear people say they vote for the Greens. Honestly. Anyway, tonight on the program, I'll cross to America to speak with Penny Grandy. Uh, plenty to discuss there as the clowns show of Biden's presidency continues. It's absolutely woeful. And I think you'll be shocked. Please, can someone put us or him out of his misery? I'll also speak with the Queensland opposition leader, David Christofulli, about how the Palaszczuk government has spent $237 million on a nearly empty quarantine facility. There's plenty happening in Queensland that doesn't pass muster and plenty on here tonight too. Remember, you can email me to have your say. Do that. Love to hear from you. Alan Jones at adh.tv. Well, the Albanese government will very quickly learn the gulf between making noise in opposition and finding answers in government. Right now, wherever the Albanese government turns, make no mistake, I've been around a long time and I've seen it. There is trouble with a capital T. It has a margin of one in the House of Representatives. It needs the Greens plus one to get legislation through the Senate, but that isn't even the problem. On today's issues, such as the voice and energy, only one question needs to be answered by us. Is the policy right? The Energy Minister, Chris Bowen, whom I would argue is way out of his depth and a prisoner of ideology, can flap his arms around as much as he likes, as he did last week in the Parliament, and I'll come to that in a moment. But after years of endless talking about climate change and energy policy, we are no closer to a policy that, above all else, safeguards, secures and advances our economic well-being. It's all very well getting hairs on your chest saying we'll get rid of oil and gas and coal and fossil fuels by 2030 and we'll have net zero emissions by 2050 and suddenly your back teeth will become your front teeth. This is just meaningless rhetoric. What will be the cost to Australia? We're facing massive price rises in electricity already and gas, the inevitable result of trying to force more energy out of a system 
that is starved for energy. As I've said many times, demonize coal-fired power, you'll struggle to get investment in it. You are therefore forcing energy out of a system that desperately needs it. I've quoted often the internationally acclaimed president of the think tank, the Copenhagen Consensus Centre, who argued only last month, and I quote again, the climate policy approach of trying to push consumers and businesses away from fossil fuels with price spikes is causing pain with little climate payoff. Solar and wind are still only capable of meeting a fraction of global electricity needs, unquote. And Chris Bowen, Bowen, flapping his arms around in the parliament, presumably knows more than the chief scientist to Barack Obama, who I've told you many times, said in his recent book, Unsettled, what climate science tells us, what it doesn't, and why it matters. Quote, I'm quoting him, chief scientist Barack Obama. Leaders talk about existential threats, climate emergency, disaster, crisis. But in fact, when you actually read the literature, there's no support for that kind of hysteria. The science is insufficient to make useful projections about how the climate will change in coming decades, much less what effect human beings will have on it. The chief scientist to Barack Obama, needless to say when he wrote the book, he couldn't get an interview on American television. You see, they don't like those truths being told. Well, none of this seems to carry any weight with the insufferable know-alls like Chris Bowen. Here is Bowen at question time last week in the parliament, full of the arrogance of office, but equally full of the ignorance born of absent scholarship. Have a look at this. Our question is to the Minister for Climate Change and Energy. Can the minister please outline the Albanese government's plan to take long overdue action on climate change? Mm -hmm. And how will this plan address rising energy prices and deliver more jobs? Mm -hmm. I give the call to the Minister for Climate Change and Energy. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I thank the member for Fremantle for his question and recognise his long career of advocacy and action on climate change. And the Albanese government was elected to take action on climate change, and that's exactly what we've been doing. On the 16th of June, the Prime Minister and I notified the United Nations of our new climate targets, the country's new target of 43 per cent. We were accompanied by the Business Council of Australia, the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, the Australian Industry Group, peak climate groups, representing this Prime Minister's determination to bring Australians together on this important national challenge. And we've taken other action, of course. We've put ARENA to work on the task it was created for, changing the regulations so it focuses on renewable energy. That's what the R stands for, renewable energy. We've issued regulations to reduce the amount of sulphur in our petrol, better for our health and environment. And internationally, Mr. Mr. Speaker, I've signed a, an agreement with Secretary Granholm, the US Secretary of Energy, on a zero emissions task force. And of course, we will ensure and have ensured that the Australian carbon credit market operates with integrity and is seen to operate with integrity, which the previous government ignored. That's what we've been doing. And of course, Mr Speaker, today was the next step. I introduced on behalf of the government the government's climate bill. This is important. It enshrines in law those target, its targets. It provides the framework for investment. It provides the framework for investment. That's what the business community wants. That's why the business councils called for the legislation to be passed. The Commerce Chamber of Commerce and Industries called for Order. the legislation to be passed. They know that this is necessary. But there are some in this House, Mr. Speaker, who think they know more about business than the business council, <laughs> mainly the leader of the opposition. He announced, without seeing the bill, without referring to his shadow cabinet, without taking it to his party room, that they were against the bill. They were against. He'd heard enough. It was action on climate change and he's against it. He'd heard enough, Mr Speaker. This is the decade of denial and delay that they want to continue. We had 22 energy policies, Order, the 22 energy policies and they couldn't land one. They couldn't, and they couldn't deliver what they announced. The previous Minister for Energy promised almost a billion dollars of new generation. They didn't, they didn't deliver one what? Not one what? Not enough to boil a kettle. Could the Minister for Energy deliver under the previous government? Order. And as we've heard, on the 6th of April, he amended the industry code for energy retailers so that they hid a 19.7% energy price rise. Well, I, wonder, I wonder if that had anything to Order. do with the election called four days Hume. later. 
We've got a lot to do, Mr Speaker. There's been a decade of denial and delay. Order. We haven't got a second to waste, and nor are we going to waste one. Yeah. I give the call to... Can you believe that rubbish? And, of course, the Business Council, all this woke lot. It's unbelievable. Well, he may as well enjoy his moment there because I'm telling you, they are heading for a train crash. And he talks waste. He's wasted his time and hours in saying nothing except that he's sticking a so-called energy bill into the parliament this week. As I said, this bloke can wave his hands around all he likes. But we now have an Australian Competition and Consumer Commission report this week about a gas crisis. We have no national gas reservation policy, yet gas underpins our economic well-being. It's critical for our manufacturing and it's a key element in determining electricity prices. But a gas crisis means a scarcity in energy. That means energy bills climb and that's happening. And that leads to inflation and that puts pressure on interest rates. Well done, Mr Bowen. What does he say about any of that? Nothing. The trouble is the Bowens of this world have no regard for our prosperity. They worry about ideology. A small group of companies dominate the gas industry, controlling 90% of our supplies. So domestic users, business and families face uncertainty over supplies of gas. Yet we're one of the world's biggest gas exporting nations. But the Greens want to freeze on new gas development and our major producers without a national gas reservation policy. That's reserving gas for our use first before it goes overseas. We don't have such a policy. They're wanting to divert the bulk of uncontracted gas away from the domestic market to take advantage of the high prices on the world spot markets. What about that, Mr Bowen? Then, of course, on top of this, the coal issue. If coal is the problem, why are we exporting it to Japan, South Korea, India and Vietnam? Or do they wash it on the way over there? But those countries have invested in new, high-efficiency, low-emission coal-fired power stations. And there are 345 of them being built around the world. What do you say to that, Mr Bowen? Well, now, look, the heat is on Peter Dutton, the opposition leader, and I hope he's equal to the task. He should oppose Labor's climate change bill when it's presented to the House of Representatives this week with a simple question. Tell us what all of this will cost to the nation, and I'll then tell you how we'll vote. And then remind them that they fought an election campaign promising to slash electricity bills by $275. The sun will come up in the West before that happens. Put simply on energy policy or climate change, whatever you want to call it, the Albanese government is already in heaps of trouble. Well, it's that time of the week. Let's go to America, where even from this far away, they seem to be in a cultural, ideological and economic mess. I hope you watched Fred uh, last night. Yes, it would have been last night. You would have seen this unadulterated rubbish by the Vice President of the United States of America. That's our new guest, Fred Paul, on at nine o'clock every night here. And he showed a little bit of this. And you can't believe it. If Biden falls over, this is the nonsense you get. Have a look at Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, good afternoon. I want to welcome these leaders for coming in to have this very important discussion um, about some of the most pressing issues of our time. Um, I am Kamala Harris. My pronouns are she and her. I am a woman sitting at the table wearing a blue suit. Can you believe this? I'm Kamala Harris. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm a woman sitting at the table wearing a blue suit. Let's bring in Peggy. Peggy, surely this is sickening stuff to a majority of Americans. How far further can you sink? Well, thank you, Alan, as always, for having me on. I don't think they can sink much further, and yet it seems like day by day they continue to do so. Kamala Harris is... She's the best insurance policy for keeping Joe Biden in office because every time somebody wants to get rid of Joe Biden, they look to her and say, well, maybe we'll keep him around for a bit. She's not relatable. Nobody is listening to her. And I don't know who the audience is she's speaking to, but it's certainly not the vast majority of the American people. Unbelievable. My pronouns are she and her. But then, Peggy, you mentioned Joe Biden. I mean, the alternative is this bloke. Listen to this, where he says, poor kids are just as bright 
and just as talented as white kids. Listen to this. We have this notion that somehow if you're poor, you cannot do it. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. What? Peggy, I mean, this is no laughing matter. I mean, Putin and Xi see no threat from the West with this kind of leadership. So the bureaucracy are running America. Well, imagine if Donald Trump said something like that, yep. the hysteria that would ensue. And Joe Biden gets a pass and people cover for him and say, oh, well, he didn't really mean it. And he had a stuttering problem as a child, so he probably just got stuck on a word. No, he means everything he says because he says it intentionally and consistently. And he consistently has air cover from the media and from the Democrats on the oh, left. Oh, yes, I know. No one, no one calling him out. Have a look at this. America, he says, is a nation that can be defined with a single word. But Biden, in his bumbling dotage, couldn't find the word. Have a look at this. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was going to foot him, uh, foot, foot, excuse me. Peggy, sorry. I'm sorry for you and all our American friends. What has America done to deserve this? Well, nobody knows what Joe Biden is talking about, but we do know what he's not talking about. And he's not talking about things that the American people care about, like crime, like inflation, food and gas prices, border insecurity. And how sad that the president of the United States can't even say something positive about Americans who would still consider themselves, even under Biden, to be proud and hardworking and patriotic. I would say that the American people would have no problem finding words to describe Joe Biden. And they would be words like, a failure, a disappointment, a disaster, an embarrassment. And the fact that we're talking about this all the way in Australia, it proves that the American people know exactly what they're talking about, even though Joe Biden doesn't. Oh, yes. The whole world is watching on this and they are disillusioned and feeling a sense of desperation because it just strengthens the hand of Putin and Xi. Nancy Pelosi is the third most powerful political figure in America, just for the benefit of our viewers if we don't understand this, but if something happened to Biden and Harris, Pelosi would be sworn in as president. She's leading a six-member all-Democrat congressional delegation on a trip to American allies in Asia, which includes Singapore, Malaysia, South Korea and Japan. Uh, Peggy, what about Taiwan? Well, of course, China sees Taiwan as part of them, but this has a democratically elected governance and is recognized as an ally and a partner, an economic partner and a military partner to us and to many in the West. And so you wonder what Nancy Pelosi is up to, because this is an all Democrat congressional delegation, like you mentioned, which typically would be bipartisan. But she has excluded all of the high ranking Republican members who should be on this trip with her. And so what precisely is she up to? And we may not know it yet, but I think that time will tell that Nancy Pelosi is out for her own good, not for national security or for things that will benefit the American people and our national security. Well, the Pentagon, I mean, this is a very, very big issue from my perspective, as I see it. I mean, the Pentagon is saying the move was long planned. Now, it's more than a coincidence, but if she goes, Pelosi would be the most senior US politician to visit Taiwan since the former Republican Speaker Newt Gingrich. But at the same time, Beijing is saying they see such a visit as a sign of increasing US diplomatic and military support for Taiwan. Now, if suddenly she doesn't go, China will have been seen to be able to prevail over America and dictate American behavior, more weakness. Yeah. Well, Nancy Pelosi has boxed herself and the White House and our military into this corner by leaking the details of this trip. And clearly it was not done within with coordination with the military or with White House officials because they've come out against that. And so you wonder, what is the what is the distraction that she's trying to create? Does she want to make sure that we're not talking about her husband's DUI, which goes to trial this week? Is she wanting to undermine the White House for her own self-promotion? Maybe she has personal or business dealings there that we don't clearly know about yet, but eventually will. But, but clearly this was done without coordination and has endangered the West. That's a very good point that you make. So are you saying that it is clear now in America that she is making this trip without the endorsement of the administration? 
It appears that this was leaked. And, you know, you think about all the secret trips that high-level officials, including even presidents of the United States, sometimes make to dangerous regions. And so we know there's the capacity when there's the will to keep things secret. And this appears to have leaked directly from Speaker Pelosi's office. And so this was not accidental. This was intentional. And the White House is now stuck um, in pretty much making sure that Nancy Pelosi goes, because to your point, if she doesn't go, all it does is signal additional weakness to China. And what kind of provocation would that promote in China, do you think? Yeah, well, we see China being um, more and more bold all the time. And we yeah. know that this wouldn't have happened under the Trump administration, but they sense weakness and are taking every opportunity they can to flex their muscle, to show strength. And the Biden administration seems to only be good at one thing, which is showing weakness and playing right into China's hand as they mm. continue to show strength. Yeah, just, just for the benefit of our viewers, Be Beijing, as we most probably know, claims Taiwan as Chinese territory, and it's vowed to use force to take the democratically governed, uh, Peggy made that point, democratically governed Ireland, which has been a long-standing US partner. Now, some in Congress, just repeating, Peggy, are saying rightly that Beijing shouldn't be able to dictate the terms of US engagement with Taiwan. But nonetheless, Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate minority leader, is right when he said, well, if she doesn't go now, She's handed China a victory. That's the dilemma, isn't it? Absolutely. And this was not accidental. Nancy Pelosi knew exactly what she was doing. And the rest of us, I think, are probably still just catching up to what her intentions are. And we haven't seen that full hand play out. But this just shows that this White House, this Congress, and even this military do not work in coordination. No, and no. America is less safe when they're working in silos. Mm. They're more safe when we're working not across, not just across our different departments and agencies, but with our allies as yes, well. Absolutely. The world's a less safe place with yeah, these I, charades that are going on. I should just say there is a one story that if Pelosi goes, the Chinese military could mount a show of force and may try to interfere with the flight path of the military plane that she's expected to travel on. Just before we go off the subject, Peggy, how do you read this at the moment? Well, we have to realize that China has been making incursions in Taiwanese airspace and uh, in their sea space for years. And so they've maybe ramped that up a little bit with hypersonic weapons and test firing of missiles. But this is nothing new. They're just elevating it and really sort of testing the West to see what will we do, how will we respond, and are we resolved really mm. at all costs to protect Taiwan, which Joe Biden yep. has said we will. Yeah. And of course, if she doesn't go, it will be another signal of weakness. Not that you need another signal of weakness <laughs> under the leadership of Biden and Kamala <laughs> Harris. <laughs> Just before you go, uh, I note the US economy has shrunk for the second quarter in a row, which is technically a recession. Is that how things feel in America? Absolutely. And this White House is just now catching up to what the American people have felt for months, if not for a year. You know, as my dad would have said, Joe Biden's record is unblemished by any good decisions because <laughs> everything he does, <clears throat> excuse me, seems to inflict more pain. He's doubling down on bad ideas and doesn't seem to care the harm that he's causing the American people. And <clears throat> excuse me, remember that when he ran for office, he promised that there would be no tax increases on anybody making $400,000 a year or less. What is inflation? It's a tax on the middle class and the poor, and he seems intent on continuing down this path of inflation by more and more government spending. Yeah, I mean, there's a bill now, apparently, he's got approval for a trillion dollars of revenue <laughs> raising, a trillion dollars, but almost half of that will go on climate change. I mean, the blokes out of, they're out of control, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. You can never spend your way out of no. inflation. You can never no. spend your way out of a recession. And they're trying to do both. It's never worked. It won't work now. And so the American people see through this and wonder, why does Joe Biden wish so much ill upon the American people that he claims to support and protect and defend? Yeah, I mean, just repeating that to, to our viewers. I mean, Biden said there'd be no raising of taxes. He's now talking about a trillion dollars over 10 years. And the biggest lump will come from a 15% minimum corporate tax, but 369 billion on energy and climate initiatives. So I know the Tax America to pursue this mistaken philosophy about renewable energy and a country with a gross debt of what? 
30.58 trillion. Goodness me. Peggy, I'm sorry. I wish we had better news from your wonderful, wonderful country, but things will change. They have to, I guess. Always good to talk to you. Thank you for your insights and we'll talk next week. Thank you so much, Alan. It's always a pleasure to be on with you. There she is, Peggy Grandy. Wonderful to hear from her, but isn't it an absolute mess? 300 billion, by the way, on that uh, revenue, only 300 billion would be left over 10 years to reduce the deficit. Hardly worth bothering, would you have thought? Peggy will be with us next week. Now look, in case you're interested, Mother Earth had its shortest day on June 29 since records began. 1.59 milliseconds were shaved off the usual 24-hour spin, so timekeepers may now have to add what they call a negative leap second, which basically means speeding up the clocks. I understand the speed of the Earth's rotation varies constantly. I'm sure that's because of climate change, don't you reckon? I mentioned last night some outstanding performances which we should acknowledge at the Birmingham Commonwealth Games. So I must apologise to our South Australian viewers for ignoring the remarkable marathon victory by the Narracorda mother, Jess Stenson. She's 34 with a little boy, Billy, and the three Australian women in the women's marathon, Sinead Diver, Aloise Wellings and Jess Stenson, had an average age of 39 and between them, five kids. The youngest member of Mum's Army was Jess at 34, and she gave birth to son Billy in 2019. She virtually led all the way. Aloise Wellings was a splendid fourth, and Sinead Diver fifth. Australia, by the way, have won six of the 10 Commonwealth Games gold medals in the women's marathon since it was added to the Games in 1986. Well, Emma McKeon last night blitzed the women's 50 metres butterfly final to become the most prolific gold medalist in Commonwealth Games history with 12 gold medals. And I suspect there is more gold yet to come. Emma McKeon, a modest, unassuming, but tough as teak competitor. And well done to Kyle Chalmers. I spoke about him last night. He answered the only way he could. All the rubbish about his private life, the focus on Cody Simpson has been absurd. Chalmers is an Olympic gold medalist. And now the Commonwealth Games 100 metres freestyle record holder in a splendid 47.51 seconds. The world record from 2009 is 46.91. He's not far away. The games, I should point out, are about saluting champions, not pop stars. And congratulations to 24-year-old Georgia Godwin from the Gold Coast, who's won gold in the women's artistic gymnastics all-round final against some very hot competition. And our women's rugby sevens bumped out of the Olympics in the quarterfinals by Fiji and then beaten by Fiji in their final group game last Saturday, managed to turn it all around with a 22-12 win for gold against Fiji in the final. Congratulations to Tim Walsh and the girls. And well done to the new cycling sprint king, 23-year-old Matthew Richardson. Born in the UK, by the way. He came here when he was nine and grew up in WA, but he was a brilliant gymnast as a teenager. He sustained an elbow injury and turned to cycling. One interesting game story, India's gold medal, gold medal hopes in the cycling team sprint were in the hands of 18-year-old David Beckham and 20-year-old Ronaldo, the two young men named after the two football gods. They had trouble getting through the airport when the passport inspector said, is that really your name, David Beckham? We'll get your head around this. The full name is David Beckham Elka Tok Hongu. E-L-K-A-T-O-H-C-H-O-N-G-O. -O. No wonder he calls himself David Beckham. Well, now, to matters at home, may I suggest we're ahead of the pace on this program? How many times have I argued the Reserve Bank Governor, Dr Lowe, and the board should resign for misleading borrowers? Now, economists, weeks after we talked about this, economists and other so-called experts have caught up with us, and they're now making the same call today. And while Chris Bowen flaps his arms, and Jim Chalmers talks about Treasury and Reserve Bank forecasts, 2,000 homes, mostly in Brisbane, are still uninhabitable five months after the deadly floods. Not only Brisbane, the little community of Broke in New South Wales, Hunter Valley is just that, Broke. Ravaged by floods that washed away roads and submerged homes and businesses. But when it comes to help, where's Canberra? Where is Macquarie Street? Nowhere to be seen. The back home grants of $20,000 presumably don't apply 
to the forgotten people at Broke. But don't worry, the Federal Minister Murray Watt, who didn't know what to do about the foot and mouth crisis, tells us that three weeks after the floods, government is still working to deliver support. I'll ask you something. When do you think any government will start addressing things that really matter to us? I mentioned yesterday, there are potholes all over this country, road safety traps. There are people who've been wiped out by bushfires and floods, and they are still the forgotten people. Well, may we say that government has never been so big, never been so bloated, and never been so useless. Well, look, as you know, on this program, we say things as they are. And while I believe with the Indigenous voice and energy policy, the Albanese government is heading for a train crash, there is little comfort in the way state governments are being run. I'll be looking at Victorian issues shortly with an election looming there. And the New South Wales government seems to have lost its way. Too much navel gazing. But I wonder what died in the wool Liberal supporters in New South Wales think of the word out of Macquarie Street that Matt Keane is organising leadership numbers. They've got to be kidding. As one senior minister said to me today in the New South Wales government, I quote him exactly, in our game, the opposition sit in front of you, the enemy lurks behind you, unquote. Well, then we go to Queensland. The secrecy and indeed seeming dishonesty are a staggering indictment of a Queensland government. And I can't understand how Anastasia Palaszczuk has let things get so out of control. Remember the last time I interviewed the opposition leader, David Christofulli, we talked about the resignation of the Integrity Commissioner, a widespread failure by lobbyists to declare meetings or the names of those who attended meetings. Reportedly, hundreds of breaches and the Integrity Commissioner had a laptop and mobile phones taken from her office. Then, of course, we had the Coldrake Review of Culture and Accountability in the Queensland public sector. Again, a focus on lobbyists who, on one hand, were working to secure the re-election of the Palaszczuk government and at the same time lobbying the same government for benefits to companies they represented. The Premier said she would accept all of Coldrake's 14 recommendations. There's no evidence of that. And the company Anacta run by two Labor Party lobbyists, reportedly secured massive contracts for their business clients shortly before and during the state election campaign. And now it's even worse. Queensland taxpayers have forked out more than $200 million for the Wellcamp quarantine facility near Toowoomba. But as I read it, only 730 guests, they call them, have stayed at the quarantine facility and now none. Let's go to the opposition leader, David Christofulli. David, thank you for your time. Firstly, though, in relation to Professor Coldrake's 14 recommendations, have any of these been implemented? Not as yet, Alan. And uh, to summarise what you just said, there is something rotten in the state of Queensland, and this shows just how rotten it is. Now, we're waiting to see what those recommendations are uh, in, in the Premier's response to them. The Coldrake report... Alan, from the get-go, this is all about kicking the can down the road. Yeah. Honest... Well, well, it doesn't seem to have affected this enactor, this lobbying company that Anastasia Palaszczuk launched. She launched in 2019. They're off to Canberra to do the same work. Well, Mr Albanese said he wanted to run a government like Premier Palaszczuk's. Well, he's off to the right start because <laughs> her government's been run by this one guy who wields far too much power. He operated from a taxpayer-funded building during the election campaign, and he's getting his pound of flesh now, and he's on his way to see your good folk in Canberra. So, Alan, there's no doubt about it. When governments give up on integrity, they give up on governing for you. It Good comes on you. about governing for their mates. Wonderful it's all comment. about the deals. Wonderful that's comment. what we're seeing in, Canberra, in uh, Brisbane right now. Yeah, when they give up on integrity, that's a very good comment. They give up on governing. Let's go to Wellcamp. Are taxpayers aware that the total capital and leasing costs for this complex near Toowoomba will be $198.5 million? David Christofulli, who gets that money? If you add the on costs on, Alan, it's more than that. It's uh, over 220 million. And the first component of it, the 200 million you talk about, well, that goes to a private family company. Now, uh, we've never had a beef with that. The beef has been with the silly government that was willing to sign a massive check for a facility we will never own. 
Now, the government said it was about future-proofing. What an absolute load of nonsense. How can something be future-proofing when you hand the keys back after six months and you can't use it again? That is absolutely ridiculous. Let me give you some figures to put home just how serious this is. Over 220 million, that could have put on about two and a half thousand nurses, could have bought over 190 ambulance vehicles, 130 intensive care beds in the middle of the greatest health crisis we've seen. Instead, we've got a lease facility that has had 700 people go through it. That's at a cost of about 300,000 each. They could have bought them their own unit, for goodness sake. That's just unbelievable. I'm just listening to it. It's breathtaking. I mean, they keep saying, oh, well, if the state's pandemic responses change, it could be used and other uses will be considered during the lease. I understand the lease runs out next April. So when that happens, does the government surrender any kind of ownership, even though it's paid all this money to WellCamp? You, you hit it in one, the keys go back. And as for now, they've said that they don't need it, so they're not using it for the next six months anyway. But you're right. Once the lease buys in April, it becomes a privately owned facility. This is the absurdity of it. And in the end, it's what happens when governments don't have an attention for detail and don't respect taxpayer-funded money. This was a really bad deal for taxpayers. And I can tell you, it struck a chord with people. I spent the weekend in my electorate going through to different things, netball carnivals, footy games, talking to everyday people at the shops. They were coming up to me and just saying, I have voted for the Premier in the past. I never will again. It's all about how things look. She's checked out. It's about glitz and glamour. Saying the things to me that everyday Queenslanders are feeling at the moment, they feel betrayed, they realise the jig is up, and uh, people right now are shaking their heads at a time when cost yes. of living is so very high and so very tough. See, the other really, thing, really bad deal, mate. The, the other thing about this is, of course, this is taxpayers' money. I mean, didn't, didn't this government have to be dragged, kicking and screaming, to reveal these figures? We were told for 12 months it was commercial incompetence. And we said that was an absolute load of nonsense. It's only commercial and confidence if you're protecting a competitive tender process, for goodness sake. There wasn't a competitive tender. It was just engaged with one, one business. Now, we pushed and pushed and pushed. Air of estimates of the acting, acting order general, and to her great credit, she And then we watched them fall like a house of cards. Stephen Miles came in and said, well, we always intended to reveal this. We just needed to do it in estimates. It was an absolute furphy. They were dragged kicking, biting, because they didn't want the public to know the truth. Just you know on, why? They're embarrassed. Yes, it well, is a dreadful deal. Well, just on the point that you just made then, um, are you saying that the Auditor-General, the Acting Auditor-General, is now investigating the tender process? Was this an open tender? It was not an open tender. It was uh, an engagement directly with one provider, and that's why it should never have been commercial in confidence. We've written to the Auditor-General and we've asked for them to expand the scope. And I'll tell you why, Alan. I want to know who signed the deal, what advice they got, what due diligence they did, and I wanted to know why they're taxpayers, because I can tell you why. They knew full well the federal government was building a facility that would be owned and operated by taxpayers. They were continuing to pay for hotel rooms that remained empty. They paid $40 million from the day the Premier said hotel quarantine was over. They paid $40 million and only 12 people went through it, for goodness sake. They knew all along. And I intend to bring sunlight to this debate, I can tell you, and I am not going away on it for not uh, one uh, second. OK. Are you confident the Acting Auditor-General, who I read is investigating the project, both the procurement and the tender process, are you confident that the Auditor-General will get to the bottom of this? Very general has exposed uh, the way this government runs its procurement. It's exposed the way that it has a poor lack of attention to detail. It's spoken about cost blowouts right across the spectrum. I've got every faith that uh, they will put the blowtorch on this, and I think the government will come unstuck as a result. Yeah, I agree. I mean, obviously, if they hadn't spent $200 million plus on WellCamp, major challenges in the Queensland health system could have been addressed. Just on this second quarantine facility at Pinkin Bar near Brisbane Airport, is that another white elephant? Alan, it was a decision taken by the government to build it. Now, 
Um, there is no doubt whatsoever that it's, it comes at a big price tag. The difference between this and WellCamp is it is owned by taxpayers. So if they want to use it as flood shelter for emergency uh, accommodation for people who are doing it tough, for domestic violence victims, it's actually owned by the government and it can be used right. by the government. As opposed so to... it, it's hard to criticise yeah. something when you're talking about future-proofing when you yeah. own it. But when you say something's future-proofing and it's a short-term lease, yes. that's neither future-proof nor mm. ministerially idiot-proof. Yes. It's neither. That's it. It goes back to the private sector. Look, just on money... I note that the senior education department bureaucrat who was suspended following a corruption probe which led to the former Deputy Premier Jackie Trad quitting was paid more than $630,000 whilst stood aside and the new education department boss has said he didn't read the Crime and Corruption Commission report into the fiasco, but the head of the Crime and Corruption Commission at the time said it was essential reading for all public servants. So this Deputy Director General Jeff Hunt resigned in mid-July, more than two years after an investigation into the botched appointment of a principal at the new inner city South State Secondary College, which was in Jackie Trad's former electorate of South Brisbane, the Deputy Director General Hunt was ultimately found to have engaged in misconduct over the appointment. He was suspended, but since suspension has received $630,000. David Christofulli, this misconduct business seems to be very rewarding. Yeah, they say crime doesn't pay, but misconduct does, apparently. It's a, it's a fairly reasonable gig to sit at home and watch TV and be paid pretty handsomely. But in all seriousness, Alan, why has this occurred? You can't blame the individual. Blame the system. Blame the government. They knew for yeah, two years that this bloke was being paid because we were asking questions throughout. We asked questions at estimates. But they cannot make a decision. They are parasterial accountability. And do you know who pays? You pay. The taxpayer, you pay. Well, now, if the Director General of the Department of Education hasn't read the report and you were to become Premier, would you sack this bloke? If, uh, if a Director General on a handsome sum of money doesn't feel it's appropriate to read a report like that, uh, well, that person uh, it, that can never set the tone that you need in an organisation. Mm. So what good leadership is, is a ministerial accountability. And I'll, I'll put it back on the minister for a second, Alan, because don't get me wrong, there's no excuse for the DG not having read it. But I wonder how many times the minister said, okay, this is an important report. I want you to brief me on what your views are. I've read it, section. what are you would be holding the DG to account? Yeah. But we've got ministers in this state who believe that their role is to jump on Twitter all day and spread vitriol. No, your job is to administer. Hmm. All right, look, we'll leave it there. I was going to ask you, but next time I will, because it'll be an ongoing concern, if anyone can explain why the very successful Gold Coast Mayor Tom Tate, the boss of a massively thriving and growing city, which will host some of the events for the 2032 Olympics, is not on the organising committee. But, David, we'll resume that next time we speak. I should apologise to our viewers. That's been a bit fairly crook picture, and I know it's a bit broken up, but I trust that you're able to hear the dialogue of David Christofulli, which was very critical to the answers that he gave to those leading questions. There are real problems in Queensland. I don't know, you chuck the word corruption and everything around. If it's not corruption, it's rank incompetence and a flagrant waste of taxpayers' money and governments must be made to answer for it. David Christofulli, thank you for your time. We'll talk again soon. Look, it is staggering the extent to which politicians seem to think that because they can grab a few headlines, we're happy to be led by the nose into agreeing with them. I mentioned last night this Indigenous voice to the Parliament, the Albanese government wanting to alter the Constitution to include a component based on race. There's no other way of saying it. But of course, many in the media rely on government for their stories. So witness the Me Too-ism of the media response to the Albanese announcement that a proposal will go to us in a referendum to alter the constitution. This is the question, quote, do you support an alteration to the constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, unquote? No detail as to how this thing will work, who will be on it, how they'll be chosen and what will be their function. But does the Albanese government really expect us to accept that a racial classification 
should be added to the Constitution? Does the Albanese government think if we object to this, we're therefore racist? Does the Albanese government think that the bulk of Australians want racial categories added to the Constitution? And are we now going to suffer intimidation and vilification if we dare to oppose the so-called voice? And do the proponents of this voice actually believe what the Prime Minister has said, that to date, Indigenous Australians haven't been consulted on matters affecting them? Now, governments may not get it right, but they talk to people in the aged care industry about aged care problems. They talk to farmers, often in one-sided discussion, I might add, about the farmers' access to water, for example, in the Murray-Darling system. I'm not saying that governments discuss these things with those affected as often as they should, but the justification for this, that a voice is needed because Indigenous Australians aren't consulted, is absolute piffle. There is a Council of Peaks, P-E-A-K-S, which represents 70 top Aboriginal organisations and claims to be in a formal partnership with Australian governments. Aboriginal people don't have a voice? Well, over the last two ministers for Indigenous Affairs, Ken Wyatt and today Linda Burney, lost their voices because both are Indigenous Australians. And if there are 11 federal MPs identifying as Aboriginal in the National Parliament, is that voice not enough? Are there 11 people representing the aged care community? Are there 11 representing the disabled? Are there 11 representing our Muslim or Lebanese or Italian communities? What the hell are we on about here? Warren Mundine is widely regarded, highly esteemed as a significant Australian Indigenous leader. He wrote today something quite simple about this campaign to enshrine a First Nations voice in the Constitution when he said, quote, the campaign is championed by Australia's elites including corporate Australia, media figures and Aboriginal academics. When I speak, he said to Aboriginal people day to day, I don't find support, but rather indifference, confusion as to what it's about or outright opposition, unquote. Warren Mundine rightly says, quote, my first reaction was, why amend the constitution at all? The Commonwealth government already has power to create Aboriginal representative bodies and has before including the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee, ATSIC, and the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples. It could legislate, he said, tomorrow to create a voice. No referendum. Well, as Warren Mundine argues, and we have to keep saying it, the previous bodies all made representations to Parliament, as do many other Aboriginal bodies and individuals all the time, unquote. Look, I'm sorry to put this bluntly, but this is ideological humbug. Warren Mundine makes a further point, which is very powerful and unacknowledged by these ideological zealots when he says, and I quote, there isn't one Aboriginal group, but hundreds, each with their own country, language, kinship system and culture. He wrote, a year after the Uluru Statement of the Heart, I was in Mutijulu, a small community at the base of Uluru, and a local elder took me aside to tell me that the Uluru Statement of the Heart was not their culture and does not speak for them. Do the views of Jacinta Price and Warren, Mund Warren Mundine not count? As Warren Mundine has said simply, a national body can't speak for Aboriginal people as a group and Aboriginal people won't recognise it, unquote. Well, that's why, amongst many other reasons, if we're going to be asked in a referendum without any detail, quote, do you support an alteration to the Constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, unquote, in the interests of Indigenous Australians? I will vote no. Well, before we go to Fred Paul, I have made mention of this a thousand times, but it's worth repeating, as finally I see newspapers and other commentators, as I mentioned earlier in the program, waking up to it. When will this Dr Philip Lowe, the Governor of the Reserve Bank, be tapped on the shoulder and asked to go? This fellow has presided over the most misguided monetary policy. Monetary policy is about the price of money. Fiscal policy is about how much money you spend. He's presided over the most misguided monetary policy our nation has probably ever seen. We've had inflationary spending from government, the lowest of the low in interest rates, all of which have fueled inflation and hit Australian households very hard. First home buyers have gone out on a limb and paid a deposit for a home with all their savings on the seeming assurance that interest rates, remember, wouldn't increase until 2024. 
Note Lowe's words last November, which I've told you about many times, quote, it is still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024. Then the guru continued to wonder, quote, I find it difficult to understand why rate rises are being priced in the next year, that's this year, or in early 2023, unquote. Yet Philip Lowe and his 1,342 staff are now telling Australians, quote, it's unclear at the moment how far interest rates will need to go up. And they went up again today. Time's up, come on. One policy failure after the other, and it's the hardworking battler who's getting punished at the petrol bowser, at the supermarket, and now at the mortgage. They can all send their thanks to this Dr Lowe. Any observer with half an interest in the economy could have told you months ago that the economy was running too hot. People were too liquid because of government stimulus packages, and this would result in runaway inflation. But this isn't just happening in Australia. All around the world, central banks are living in a parallel universe and unwilling to tell the public the truth, glossing over the economic turbulence ahead. The public deserve to know what is coming, not to be sucker punched by it when it arrives. The Economist magazine editorialised the other week about how central banks everywhere are refusing to admit that to now tame inflation, it'll probably require a recession. They may already have one in America, as you heard from Peggy earlier tonight. On the US Federal Reserve, The Economist said, rules of thumb for how central bankers should respond to underlying inflation say rates should be much higher. The Fed's dawdling over the past year has worsened the conflict between its competing goals of stable prices and low unemployment, unquote. But then in Japan, their central bank is just as delusional. The Economist writes of Japan's economic situation, quote, the trouble is that expensive imports are squeezing living standards, alarming the government. Early this month, The Economist says, the bank's governor had to apologise, cop this, for saying that households were becoming more accepting of price rises, unquote. I suppose that's okay if you're on 500,000 a year. It seems we aren't the only country with an out of touch central bank, highly paid and overpaid. I've argued for weeks, but this is serious and it's worth repeating. Philip Lowe, the governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia should be shown the door today. The last federal treasurer let him get away with pie in the sky economics. The current one, Jim Chalmers, should deliver the boot immediately. And that's it from me tonight. Look, stay with us as Fred Paul gives you another hour of common sense views. He'll be joined by the Daily Telegraph's Tim Blair and the Spectator's online editor, Alexandra Marshall. I'll see you tomorrow night. Good night.